thing that has always been true in the business was that performance opens doors. If you mm -hmm. want something in the business, you gotta put up the numbers. Your team is a reflection of really who you are. When I found people of high character, capacity, and drive, I wanted to make sure I spent time with them. My whole strategy was talk in terms of what they wanted. What I'm gonna do is point you in the direction to get you closer to what you want. I'm also gonna talk to you when I see you taking actions to take you off the path of what you told me you wanted. When you falsely compliment someone, they know it. If there isn't this balance of reality, all those compliments are gonna ring hollow. Part of building strong relationships, it always comes down to being real. That became a very simple approach to me. My people would just call it the perspective conversation. Shed your perspective if I'm on the path to going where I want to go. That's the voice of Amar Dave, one of the most impactful leaders in the 70-plus year history of Cutco. The list of people Amar has helped develop is a who's who of former or current Cutco greats. Tim McCready, PJ Potter, John Carpenter, Lloyd Reagan, Scott Dennis, Larry Manley, Matt King, and many others. Through these and other leaders in his company lineage, Amar Dave has directly or indirectly changed countless lives. His one simple concept of perspective conversations can help change your life and guide you in helping others to change their lives. Amar continues to have a powerful impact as Cutco's Senior Vice President in charge of new business development. I'm honored to share his story and lessons with you all here today. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am honored today to have truly one of the most impactful leaders in the history of the Cutco organization as my guest, Mr. Amar Dave. Amar started with Cutco in 1986. He was a student at the University of Michigan. He's a huge Wolverines fan. He became a district manager not long after and was the number one district manager in the company in 1989 in just his second year as a manager, became a division manager initially in Michigan and then ultimately in Texas. And at 26 years of age, Amar was promoted to what was then known as zone 
manager. He became one of the top executives in the company at just 26 years old. His zone was number one in the company the next year in 1997. This led to Amar becoming the region manager. And ultimately, after a couple company restructurings, he was the RM of the Eastern region where he built a tremendous organization over many years, responsible for over $500 million in Cutco sales. He has become the senior vice president of Cutco Cutlery, was promoted to that role in 2014. He's responsible primarily for new business development, hatching a lot of programs uh, to help our company continue to grow. And Amar is also one of only six shareholders in the company right now. So as I mentioned, truly one of the most significant leaders in the history of Cutco. Amar, thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Glad to be here, Dan. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, let's find out a little bit about how you got started with Cutco. I know it was 1986. I know it was not vector marketing when you started, <laughs> at least where you were. So tell us a little bit about that. So it was a summer, it was going to be the summer of 86. And I was looking for a summer job that would coincidentally add to my resume. I was looking to get into the business school at the University of Michigan. And my grades weren't quite where they needed to be. They were, they were pretty solid, but struggled with accounting. So I figured uh, I better get some experience so I can have something to offset the lousy accounting grade to help me get in to B-School there. And so I was kind of searching around for something different that would give me that opportunity and went on a couple interviews and I stumbled onto this job ad about 40 minutes from my house. Didn't tell me a whole lot over the telephone, drove out to the interview. I was the one in my interview that got to cut the rope. And I remember right then when I cut the rope, I thought I could sell these. Now, Granted, I've never cooked a thing in my life at that point besides boxed macaroni and cheese, but <laughs> I knew quality and I experienced that quality and it just hit me like, I think I can sell these and got the summer job with a company called Breckmark Corporation that was an independent subsidiary. At that time, Cutco had many independent distributors around the country. You, Dan, you might remember CWE, that was Don Muras company in the West right. Coast. Yep. And in the Midwest, it was Breckmark Corporation and so on. And the Northeast, of course, was Vector. But anyway, in 1986, we were, we were separate. So we had our separate programs, did things a little differently. It was uh, interesting times for sure. But the common theme, of course, is the product. Yeah. You know? And Breckmar was owned by Breck Brecken and Marty Dimitrovich. Is that right? That's correct. When that's did you get correct. to meet Marty? So that's probably the biggest turning point in my early knife career. Just as most people, you know, you, you get the job, you go home, tell your parents and everybody else how excited you are. And you folks look at you like you're crazy, you know, who's going to buy knives, whatever. That was my experience too. Kind of after overcoming some of those things, I made some sales and I did well enough to place in the trophy standings at a local division meeting uh, that was in Lansing, Michigan. You know, so went to that meeting and really impressive guy rolls up in this chart like, you know, we want to be that guy, right? Well, that was Marty Dimitrovich. And he spoke at our meeting and he shook hands with several people. And I just remember him pulling me aside. I, you know, I don't know, probably sold 900 bucks or something for that push. I didn't even know what a push was. And he just pulled me aside and just asked me some questions, you know, if I like sports and what I thought about selling so far, just basic stuff, but it made an impression on me. And I remember feeling like if that guy is interested in me, I'm going to try to make sure he continues to be interested. Yeah showing up the right way at stuff, performing, et cetera. I knew we were a small company and I just felt like maybe there's more here. If I advance, maybe I can not only get experience, but I could actually play a role somewhere. 
didn't know what that was until later I learned about maybe going branch. And uh, interestingly, I didn't share this with you before we talked, but uh, I was a bit of a rebel. And so even though I sold a lot, my own division manager was trying to ship me off to another division in Toledo. My goal was to open up in Ann Arbor where I went to school and where I'd grown up. The way things came down is the Ann Arbor territory did not get filled. And at the last minute, I got the call. And so from there, I opened the branch out of an HR block office and had a pretty nice summer. In those days, the gold standard was if you did 100 grand, that was very successful. Right. And so that was my goal. And I got very close to that number. Even I opened late because of the whole territory jacking. And I was still in school at the time. And I remember thinking, this is going to end. And it's been like the most incredible experience of my life. I talked to the, my division manager at the time and I said, you know, I'd really like to stay open. I'll even, I'll make sure my class schedule is organized in such a manner that I can do this and so on. And he, he kind of didn't want me to do it. He wanted me to focus on school. And I just got to the place of, I can't give it up. And so he said, look, if you really want to be a district, you need to move here. So I moved about 30 miles from campus, moved my office, stayed on campus, went to school in the mornings. And at about you know, lunchtime, I'd go back to my apartment. I would change into a suit and tie because it was all formal back then. And I would drive to my office and run my office, you know, and, and then at night I'd go home and study and do it all over again. Wow. And that was the fall of 87. Well, through that process, I, I personally recruited a couple of my friends in school and they ended up being branch managers for me the next year in 1988. And we ended up having the number nine high district in the company. I was still going to school and I said, all right, well, maybe I can do this as a career. You know, of course, my parents were like, what happened to business school? I'm like, I'm living business school right now. <laughs> I'm in it. And so in 1989, you mentioned this, but 1989, I had one more year of full. So I took 16 credits in the fall and spring, or I guess the spring and the fall for that period. And I had four branches going out. So between office searches and my own office and school, we were the number one district in the company. So wow. I learned a lot about myself and about just time management and being able to handle, you know, handle more than maybe uh, you would think is age appropriate back then. You know, you're like 20, 21, 22 years old and you figure out how to make priorities. You know, you, you say, I'm not going to go to all the parties or I'm going to miss out on some social stuff. So for me, I had to give some of that up so I could run my office and develop my people. And I have no regrets about that choice. The other part that was kind of cool being a college student is I lived like a college student. So even though I was running my office in my district, I saved almost a hundred grand that year in '89. Wow! Uh, primarily because I had three roommates, and what do you do? I mean, you drink cheap beer, and there's really nowhere to go. And I was too busy working to spend a lot of money, and so it was really nice, at least for me, to have this nest egg growing. I was 22 right at the end of '89, so that was pretty awesome. Year end banquet ceremony. Silver Cup, Don Frieda awarding it, the whole thing. It was, it was really, really a great experience and a really, really amazing start too. So that was, yeah. that was my early, the early part, if you will. The early days of Amar the in Cutco. <laughs> Living business school, you said. That, uh, yeah. That's a cool way of looking at it, for sure. And what do you feel like made you so successful as a young leader? I mean, to be number one so fast while in school is incredible. These are the same themes that I think would probably reverberate throughout my, I'm going to date myself here, but almost 35 years here. Relationships matter. We, we say that all the time. 
but I meant that. I mean, to me, part of building strong relationships, it always comes down to being real. And you've known me a long time. I mean, some, for better or for worse, I'm not very good at holding back. And I'm not one that's going to shade the truth. So not intentionally try to hurt people's feelings if, if the truth hurts. But there were times that maybe I was too blunt. But at the end of the day, my people knew where I stood and they knew where they stood with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think over time, when you have people's best interests at heart, you develop strong relationships. And Indeed. that was huge. And it's been huge. Not the best player at the politics, but it's pretty open that if you want to know what I'm thinking, just ask me. <laughs> right. right. So that was a big one. I think the second one uh, beyond the relationship is the trust. I like to believe I always put my people's success first. I knew that if I had enough people succeeding, I was going to succeed. And I learned a long time ago in the business that if I could speak about my success in terms of other people in my organization succeeding, that was better than me talking about myself Mm -hmm. when I was trying to explain who I was or what I did or whatever. And so trying to get my people promoted was always the game. Let's get everybody promoted to district manager or division manager or whatever goal they had. Let's get everybody promoted. And if not promoted, get them to the place where they have the choice to be promoted. That was a big driver. That was a good insight about just speaking about success in terms of others succeeding. I think that's a a concept that a lot of our young leaders could take to heart and think about how do they portray their own success. I know a lot of young leaders that I work with, they portray their own success in terms of their own achievements and their lifestyle and their income and all the nice things that they're doing, which is, it's great. It's a part of that, but really learning to speak in terms of other people succeeding. That's a powerful insight that I think people can take to heart. I think so, Dan. And you know what else? It doesn't have to be lonely at the top if you, you know, per se. There's no need, I think, for people. If you're the one succeeding and all your people are struggling, I don't count that as success. And I think it develops resentment, actually, if you don't find a way to get your people to be successful, too. So anyway, I I latched onto that concept early, and I, I think it helped. Yep. I also like what you said about being real. And your people always knew where you stood and where they stood with you. I actually saw a a lesson shared on social media just this week. It's from Ray Dalio. You know, Ray Dalio is a Mm -hmm. very well-known business success and guru. And he wrote the book Principles, which is one of, you know, really, really a strong, strong book. And this one post he wrote that compliments are great but real feedback is more valuable. And I think as a leader, we have to learn to balance both of those things, right? We have to learn to be complimenting and recognizing our people, but we also have to be able to provide real feedback when it's necessary so that people really know where they stand, right? And you definitely have developed that reputation for providing that. Well, you know what else? And this starts with even child rearing, but when you falsely compliment someone, they know it. And so if there isn't this balance of reality, after a while, all those compliments are going to ring hollow. So instead of saying you were great, maybe you said you gave it a great effort, but the outcome wasn't great, right? That's okay. You can learn from that. The effort's where we got to start anyway. You know, another thing that has always been true in the business was that performance opens doors. If you Mm -hmm. want something in the business, you got to put up the numbers. And being willing to do it, being willing to put in the work, not being too good for the work. I was always aware of the fat cat syndrome where you know, you'd reach a title or a certain level of success and 
all of a sudden the willingness to do the hard stuff would fade. You know, and I remember one year, well, it was 89. I remember my, my branch in Toledo, Matt Kripke, by the way, who went on to also be a division manager with us. He was struggling. And I remember driving down to Toledo. His mom was then his receptionist. And she was really mad if you're listening. She didn't do a very good job. And remember, I told you, we need to fire your mom. <laughs> it took him a little while. But anyway, he was struggling for touches. And back in the day, one of the instant ways to you know, ramp up touches was to put out flyers, which we don't do anymore because it caused litter and all kinds of other stuff. But back in the day, it was you go, go to the print shop and you print out a bunch of job flyer postings. You put them on cars and desks and go to bars and wherever you can put them. Right. And you're wearing suits and it's raining and it's cruddy. And I'm like, Matt, we got to do this. And he looks at me, you didn't drive down here to do that. I said, I drove down here to help you. And if this is what's going to help you, I'm going to do it. Now we're going to do it together, but this is what we're going to do. We're not going to sit in your office and strategize. We're about to make something happen. Well, you know, Matt, Matt ended up figuring it out. And he was the number three branch that summer in the company. Mm. And uh, I can't say I was always perfect, but Man, I, I, the mentality of being willing to dive in and roll up your sleeves, that was also part of the modeling, I think, uh, for successful people. Yeah, those are some great insights that uh, I'm sure built your early success. Now, I know, Amar, that you had a, a personal adversity that you experienced right after you became the number one DM uh, the following yeah. year. Can you tell us about that? I can. So in Vector, you come off a Silver Cup year you got a bunch of money stashed. You're 22 years old. You can only imagine, you know, I'm five foot 10 barely. And I probably walked around like I was eight feet tall, right? Just, <laughs> you know, you, you got the world by the tail. Everything's awesome. Well, going into the summer of 1990, you know, I was teed up. I had some good people. And of course, I felt like I knew more than the prior years and so on. I was teed up for an encore, at least in my mind. The world had other plans for me during that fairly long drive home. One night, I was involved in a pretty serious car crash in early June, and I woke up in the ICU. Fortunately, after a couple of days, I was out of danger of losing my life, but I broke a lot of bones. I broke a lot of stuff all the way from my orbital down to everything down the right side of my body. And so you go from a lively, strong 22-year-old to you know walking with a cane and got a patch over your eye and mm. all kinds of plates in my arm and it was a very humbling experience. Let me just say that. Wow. Of course, a bunch of rehab went with that, and that took months. And so you put that all together, and I'm, I'm going to shortening this, but I had expenses, but I had no business because I couldn't run my office, and I was essentially absent for several months. You know, I depleted almost all my savings. My organization crumbled, and it was really, you know, one of those come to Jesus kind of times. And I remember there was this young branch who was still in my organization. He kind of stuck it out with me. His name is Tim McCready. And I remember him coming to the hospital saying, it's just money. We'll make more. We'll rebuild this better. And, you know, he's this, you know, he's my age. He's, he's trying to give me the pep talk. And he's my branch. <laughs> wow. um, and he was right. I mean, he stuck it out. I stuck it out with him. And just to give him a shout out, I mean, he went from that to he eventually became division manager, Silver Cup division manager, RSD under Marty, and then was the Midwest region manager before he took over Cutco storage for Cutco. So it was probably, Dan, in the weirdest way, the best thing ever happened to me because getting kind of knocked off my perch and having my ego completely drained really forced me to really think even deeper about how I was approaching things. 
and I came back that fall. I was, I was ready to go, hit President's Banquet, came around to 1991. I felt like, okay, maybe I can rebuild. Maybe I can do this again and re-up. And uh, I remember distinctly that I had, a, I don't know, I was probably down to like five or 10 grand in my that prior 100, 100K bank account. And I remember I needed money for the summer to invest in the summer, mailers, right. uh, extra staffing. And I kept a couple grand back. And I remember going to a real fancy suiting store. And ba- you know, I bought like three Armani suits, the shirts, the ties, the whole thing. I said, you know what? If I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to look <laughs> for it. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to give myself no margin for error, which of course is stupid. But so I basically invested all the money in the business, you know, whether it's the suits or the business, like, here we go, buddy, you got to get this. And I ended up being the number one office in the region at the time. And I had super bonus on the line. I had a division manager promotion on the line. And so I really needed to have it. And I got it. I got it. It came together. And that was uh, probably those two years, the contrast from 89 to 90, and then coming back in 91. Those are probably the three most important years of the 35 years that I've had in the business. That May in 1991, a guy by the name of PJ Potter came in for an interview. <laughs> uh, so I think some people remember PJ. Yep. Uh, he, he came in. Oh man, I could tell you stories about, I took him field training a couple times, but that's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He'll get his own episode at some yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah. Ask him about field training with me. <laughs> We would argue in the car about what he should have sold them. I'm always like, you could have sold them more. He's like, no, they couldn't afford more. I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> good times. Good times. Yeah. Well, that's an amazing story of those uh, those few years right there, Amar. And it's, uh, it's cool to hear that you, in looking back, realized or came to the conclusion that that experience was good in your life, as difficult as it was. It made a lot of things of you. And uh, has been really uh, transformative in your career as it's evolved. You're right, Dan. And you've been around a lot of personal development stuff. And some of these things are easy to say, but you can't really have success until you failed. You know, at least that's that's the lesson I drew from that. You know, you got to appreciate the the lack of success and you got to appreciate the adversity. So when you have the success, you protect it and you don't take it for granted. You know, in that period, I met my wife. I moved to Texas, which set off a whole new track. Of things, I mean, that three-year period was really huge. I'm glad I stuck it out. And I know there are probably people listening to this that are having adversity or will have adversity. And I just want to say, stick it out. If you're true to yourself, you can get back and get even better. Get, yeah. get back even better. Yeah. That's very valuable and powerful, I think, for anyone to hear who's going through any sort of season of challenge or difficulty, which I know many people are right now. So, yeah. So you became the division manager in Michigan, and then you very quickly relocated down to Texas where you had a chance to take over a real significant swath of the area down there and ultimately became the zone and then region manager there initially. I've heard you express in describing your career that you stood on a lot of shoulders. Who are some of the leaders who most impacted your career? Yeah. And by the way, just for clarity, for everybody else that's out there listening, when I I say that, I, I really mean that I had people that technically reported to me, technically were in my organization, but they were already greats in the making. And I just, I was really lucky to have them around, frankly, uh, mm-hmm. to just to give you a sense of that. I mentioned Tim, when the opportunity to move to Texas came along, PJ Potter was the guy, he looks at me, he goes, we're moving to Texas. You're getting promoted. 
and I'm getting promoted. <laughs> <laughs> I remember him saying that. Don Frieda called my office. PJ answers the phone, and he's speechless, starry-eyed. He just hands me the phone, doesn't say, doesn't tell me who it is. But after I hang up, and he's listening to my conversation, because there's no cell phones in those days, he says that to me. And it was really prescient because we moved to Texas, uh, and I was lucky because the team I was going to be working with had a guy by the name of John Carpenter, who is newly promoted division manager in that area. I had a guy by the name of Lloyd Reagan, who is a brand new DM. Mm. I had PJ Potter, who is my pilot sales manager. This is in 1993. A couple years later, a guy by the name of Scott Dennis finished his branch summer and joined our organization. So if you can envision our DVM table, Dan, when I was the zone and region manager, I've got no disrespect to the names I'm not going to name, but PJ eventually moved to San Diego, got promoted to division manager. John, of course, was division manager. Lloyd got promoted to division manager. Scott Dennis got promoted to division manager. I mean, we kicked ass. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to have those people around the table, it was really hard not to, to rock the numbers. It was hard not to succeed. And, right. uh, and we had a lot of fun together doing it. Yeah. That was the 90s. You know, that was the 90s. It was a great, a great time for us and love all those guys very much. Mm. That's so awesome. And you went on to develop a lot of other amazing people over the years who came into your organization that you also had a chance to work with. I know, of course, you know, you mentioned Scott. You worked very closely with Scott for a lot of years. I know you were very significant in the development of people like Larry Manley and Matt King. You just have this track record of having been a powerful and impactful leader. And I would really love to get into what are your most important leadership philosophies or leadership strategies that uh, created all this? Well, I think there are a couple things, and it's going to blend. I know you have strategies and philosophies, and I think it'll be, I'll meander a little bit. So forgive me. One of the things. I felt very strongly about, and as I mentioned earlier, was building relationships. So a lot of this was time with the right people. People that exhibited qualities of leadership, exhibited the traits that would show that they were going to do the work, had the capacity, had the character, because leading people is a lot about your own character. If you're a bum, if you will, it's very hard to attract good people. If you're good people, you got a fair shot at attracting good people, right? So simple philosophy, but it's like, your team is a reflection of really who you are. And so when I found people of high character, capacity, and drive, I wanted to make sure I spent time with them. And the one thing I would tell anybody is there's a difference between spending just time. Oh, they were at a meeting. We spent time together. Oh, we had a scheduled call. We spent time together. To me, the time was always the unscheduled. It was always the conversation that wasn't set up. Back in the day, it was, hey, let's walk around the block. Or, hey, let's go, let's go get a, a soda at 7-Eleven. Let's drive to the post office back when we had to deposit, or the bank, when we had to deposit checks or ship our orders. It was like, I always looked for those chances. Like, I don't need a day with somebody, but can we get 20 or 30 minutes to connect? Hmm. And it doesn't matter if we talk about the business or we talk about sports. We just simply spend time where any topic can be spoken about, the chance to build a bond occurs. You know, I did probably that better with some than others, but I felt like that was really important. And once I developed that trust, my, my whole strategy, I mean, there's other strategies, but the biggest one was, you know, I would just talk in terms of what they wanted. What do you want out of this? 
And what I'm going to do is point you in the direction, point you in the path to get you closer to what you want. Mm. I'm also going to talk to you when I see you taking actions that take you off the path of what you told me you wanted. So it's a very simple conversation of, hey, Dan, you told me you really wanted X. The last month, I've been seeing you do this, which has taken you to Y. Have you changed what you wanted? Or have you lost sight of the key steps, the key actions you have to put forward? And a lot of those conversations, they, they, were, they almost never ended with me having to say, you have to do X or you have to do Y. It was more like, no, if you keep doing this, you're going to end up, your likely scenario is going to end up here. If you keep doing that, your likely scenario is going to, you're going to end up over there. So again, if you want me to help coach you, then you need to keep me abreast of what you're going for. And that became a very simple approach to me to just, my people would just call it the perspective conversation. Shed your perspective on where I am and where, if I'm on the path to going where I want to go. And so again, it made it about them, not me. And that made it very easy to have those conversations when people were, when they were frankly on the wrong track. You know, it wasn't me judging them. It wasn't me demanding them to change. It was simply me saying, hey, buddy, you're going the wrong way unless you want to go that way. And sometimes these conversations were as, as open as, you know, if you continue down the, that track, you will be out of the business in a year. I don't think that's what you want based on what you told me last time. But mm -hmm. if that's what you, if you keep doing X, you're going to end up out of the business. And a couple of people you mentioned, Dan, I had that conversation with people that I think would be shocked that we're all people. Sometimes we need guidance, we need reminders, we need coaching. And some very prominent names in the company, you know, that worked with me, those were conversations that we had sometimes multiple times over a long career. Because again, sometimes people get into ruts or they, they don't actually have the ability to step out of themselves and have a broader perspective. And and that's a role I, I, I came to play for a lot of them. And I still try to do that with my children. It irritates them, of course. They're younger and not as experienced as those people, but it's still the approach I'm most comfortable with. Yeah, that is such a powerful insight, Amar. I don't think there's anyone who is successful long-term that doesn't experience periods that you might describe as a rut or a downturn in their results or a downturn in their mindset or a downturn in their motivation temporarily. Yep. And if someone doesn't have a leader like you around to help them come out of that, then many of those people are going to move in a negative direction and they're going to end up out of our business or not having that same success that they once had and uh, falling into a much longer period of difficulty. But by having people like you there to be able to observe them and offer that feedback and that insight and challenge them and inspire them, people are able to more quickly move out of those difficult times and back into success and ultimately even much greater success. Totally agree, Dan. And, and, and I, I will say I'm biased, right? Being here for 35 years almost. I didn't want somebody to leave me, my organization or our company and say it didn't work. I wanted them to give their effort, give their energy, give their heart. And then if they said, hey, I'm, I'm doing great, but this just isn't for me anymore. That's a different departure conversation than someone failed because they really just didn't try or they got into that rut, as you referred, and stayed there. Uh, that would have been a failure of leadership on my part. So it didn't always work out perfectly, but that was a driving force. Yeah. Um, awesome. What else stands out in your mind as important leadership philosophies or strategies, Amar? I don't want to leave out fun. 
I always kind of jokingly said, you know, I'm going to be the czar of fun. We're going to get results, but we're going to have fun. And I meant it. And I think you've had some of the people I've had at my various teams uh, on these podcasts. I, I'm pretty confident if you were to ask any of them, did you guys have fun working together? I'd say they all would say, absolutely. Uh, it just had to be part of it because otherwise it's a grind. Mm-hmm. And so intermixing that and people seeing you could do that, we allowed ourselves to have fun. We allowed ourselves to be real, all in the context of working really, really hard. And I think that's, it can be trite to say that, but I, I feel like I lived it. I feel like I exemplified that for my people, maybe sometimes too much, but it was an important element of that. I think being serious, I think that attracts people. You know, I think when yeah. people see people having fun, they're making money, they're growing personally, they like each other. It's hard not to have people want to join you. Right. You know, go to any vector wedding. How many weddings in any other company would you go to where there all these people are from quote unquote work that are supporting in these big life events? And so that's part of that. Create that feeling with all the people you can in your organization. Yeah. One of the quotes or philosophies that stands out for me that I remember hearing initially from you is the concept that pleasing results must come before pleasing methods, right? Yes. And that pleasing methods is about lifestyle and schedule and, you know, all that yes. kind of stuff. But to be able to get to that stage, when you set an example, like you set a fun and having that lifestyle, I think a lot of young people see that and they want that maybe before they've earned it, right? It's a great point. That's how do you, a, that's how really do you unpack that? Yeah. Unpack that concept yeah, a little bit. I will. I will definitely because you're right. You're helping me clarify that. Uh, by the way, the pleasing results, pleasing methods statement comes from Don Muirath. That's where I took that back in the early 90s when he was my zone manager. And you're right, Dan. I should have said that the fun is there, but it was always in the context of results. Mm-hmm. So if the results weren't there, we didn't get to have the fun. So the pressure was if we want to have fun, we got to go post some results so we can have the fun that we all really want to have. And you're right. There was an order to it for sure. But that was kind of the pressure. The pressure was, hey, man, let's perform so we can go do that really cool thing we talked about doing next time we get together or whatever. And so you're right. There is an order of things and it's results first, uh, fun second, but, but fun's right there. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about how all of this led to what you're doing now. Yeah, so a couple of things under the guise of get people promoted. As you know, Scott, my RSD, my right-hand guy for many years in that role. I mean, the reality is, Dan, he deserved the opportunity to get promoted. And I, I was kind of looking for a way that this could all work. And late 2013... This opportunity presented itself. Jim Stitt called me, Jim Stitt Sr., and wanted to know if I would come into Olean to talk about other opportunities in mm-hmm. the company. And of course, I said I would. And, you know, what Jim explained to me at the time was that we kind of reached a certain size and way that, that we were operating, that our, that our growth was, we weren't going to have the exponential growth that we'd had for the last 20 years or whatever time period you want to measure. We're still doing well. We were growing and we were thriving. But he was interested in diversifying our sales channels, interested in finding other profit centers that we could use to reinvest in programs because right. new programs take money, i.e. the BMW program is an example of you know finding 
new profits to support our field, to make them, again, feel excited about being part of this great company. And he basically, Jim said, you know, don't encroach on Vector. Beyond that, do whatever you want. Go find something for us. And, you know, you can imagine we've all had ideas, right? Why don't we do this? Why don't we sell that? I think we should do this. We've all had these conversations in the business from various perspectives. And of course I had too. And so the hot thing in 2014 for us was, and you would remember this, was, was really pursuing consumables. And I want to say this here because in case people are still listening, consumables was very high on our list to get a consumable product into Vector where you could sell it one time and then the repeat business would build income. And I'm not saying that it's over, but we spent a lot of time with different companies trying to co-brand, trying to partner. The challenges were really very basic, but they're still there today. One is quality. Cutco's brand is, well, come on, it's premier. And we, we all know this. It was very, very hard to find a product that had a similar kind of ethos for how they made their product and how people viewed their product and the brand, right? right. So there was a question of if we're going to team up with some out that doesn't have the same brand imagery, then, then we, are, we risk diminishing our brand, which is, of mm-hmm. course, not an option. And then secondarily, the commission structure. You know, we're lucky to manufacture our product and our own prices. Right. That allows us to support a very lucrative pay package for people. Well, when you're dealing with a third party and they're saying, well, we don't have those margins, we can't pay your people, that becomes very, it becomes very uninteresting to a yep. lot of our people, right? Right. So those two hurdles became really, 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 really difficult to overcome. I mean, we looked at razors, you know, uh, we looked at spices, we looked at food products, and it really, really, we just couldn't find the right fit. So mm-hmm. it's kind of on the shelf, it's not gone, but those challenges, until we figure out a way to crack those, we just didn't feel like that was the best use of, of time and energy we had. Concurrently, we got approved for a test at Costco. Yep. I think everybody knows Costco is the number two retailer in the world by volume, and they're growing like crazy everywhere internationally as well as the U.S. So we do road shows within Costco, and by the way, we do about hundred plus a month. It's about twelve, thirteen hundred road shows a year in a normal year. COVID year, it's a little different, but what that has allowed us to do is sell some product, mm-hmm. make some profits that we've been able to reinvest in the business. But it's also um, driven what I think are overall sales. I mean, a road show in a typical Costco, we might see in a 10 or 12 day Costco show, we might see 25 to 40,000 people in an eight or 10 day period to come by our booth. And when you do that with a thousand or 1200 shows, I mean, you're talking 300, 400, 500,000 people a year that have seen Cutco. And they've seen it in a context of a brand retailer they trust. So if they don't know Cutco, they're a Costco member. They have to pay to be a member. They see us there. That has to add credibility. You know, from our experience, last six and a half, seven years selling, we've re-engaged so many customers that didn't know where to find us. You know, they bought the product 30 years ago or something, and they didn't know that we still offered free service and sharpening and so on. And so... We've re-engaged a lot of Cutco owners. We've brought new people into the system. And so that's been really good for the company. I know it's not tied directly to Vector, but it's good for Cutco Cutlery, which makes it good for Vector. Indeed. If it's good for Cutco Corporation, it's good for Cutco Cutlery, it's good for Cutco. I'm sorry, good for Vector. So 
that's a project that's ongoing. We also have something called Next Gen, and the Next Gen program is led by Rich Plaskin. And in short, the idea here is can we recruit non-college students? We predominantly work with college students. We all know that. But the way the economy has changed in the last few years, it seems like there's an opportunity for this quote-unquote gig worker, whether they're doing driving Uber or Lyft or some of those sidelines, this could fit right in with them. So we started pursuing this three years ago. And the goal was, could we add twenty-five to $30,000 in new business per office per year? And so far, so good. I mean, I know some people do recruit non-students successfully do well with them, but the vast majority of our people don't. We're kind of focused on one, one channel, one audience, but there's all these other people out there. So we've been testing this for a while. We are now expanding this test. I think we're going to have around 150 offices on NextGen starting this fall, including quite a few in your region. Right. And we're hopeful to open up another opportunity where it's almost invisible to the manager, but when they get to training, hopefully they have an extra one or two recruits in training every week. That, that's essentially the goal. And they haven't really done much to get them there, but they provide CPO and maybe development opportunities and they add to the business. So yeah. uh, that is something that is currently ongoing. And then what was kind of in motion, well, we were exploring international. To me, that is, and that kind of preempts the last question you had there, Dan, the big future question. The big, the big enchilada for the business to really grow leaps and bounds is probably the international markets. I mean, mm-hmm. we can certainly grow here in the U.S. We are growing. We're growing nicely. But when you really talk about going big, we all acknowledge there's a big world out there. And we have not really successfully tapped that. And so I think with being a new, new business development for the last few years, the one thing I've opened my eyes to is there are multiple ways to distribute the product. We don't right. necessarily have to be direct sellers. We can sell through various retail, maybe television selling, maybe it's an e-commerce push, maybe it's using our Costco partnership to expand in other markets where they already have a footprint. So I can't define it because it's undefined, but that was the thing that was really hot on my 2020 list. COVID, of course, came along, uh, we shut our plants. We're working really, really hard back there just to get our inventory to the right level. So we weren't really in a position to try to open up a new country. Right. But, but to me, that is still the big, the big thing on the horizon for us, at least for me, to pursue. It's an amazingly complicated set of questions, but I think the payoff is really there. And who knows what opportunities that creates for people that are in our current business. So Yeah. And one of the benefits of the whole COVID scenario is that we've learned a lot of ways of operating virtually. Yes. And yes. when I think of that, like I know that several of our managers in the Western region have recruited people who are living in other countries right now. They're American wow. citizens who happen to be somewhere else. They're selling remotely, probably mostly to customers here in the US, but I'm sure they're selling to some of their local customers that they know sure. that are their neighbors. And so there is like little trickles of stuff going on because right. of this remote operation method that we have perfected or really been developing this year. And that could, there's tons of doors that could open up through that way of, uh, of you're operating. Absolutely right. So you're yeah. absolutely right. And by the way, that last thing, Dan, I don't want this to be lost, but you guys have done an amazing job. You and the regional manager team, DVMs, everybody just taking what really was a very uncertain situation and making it into an, a fantastic year for the company, Vector. I mean, yeah, that, that I, takes leadership, man. I know you're asking me about leadership, but you guys, you guys have really led. It's been impressive. 
Well, I appreciate you saying that. And as much as I think uh, I can speak for our region, my region manager peers and say that our division managers have largely driven that development this year. They're the ones figuring out how to do all these things that we've done. And they figured it out really fast in March and April. And they all got their hands really dirty in figuring out those things. You know, just to circle back to some of the things you're working on, I think about ne- the next gen opportunity. And I just feel like in this day and age, as you said, the gig economy, right? A lot of people are looking for ways that they can earn additional income. Cutco is such a great product and has such great brand, you know, recognition out there. And there's so many people, you think about people who are middle aged people who have known Cutco, who use Cutco who could represent the product and, you know, be consistently selling and bringing in an additional income. That's a huge market out there that could be tapped into. And it's great to see that we're beginning to uh, get into that. And then Costco has been a really cool development from my perspective. I've had so many reps who have said that a customer said to them, Oh yeah, I saw you guys at a booth in Costco. And that customer now buys from this rep, but Mm -hmm. that it builds credibility when we're in a Costco. And there's so many, and I also know you, you reference like the numbers of people that walk through Costco's it's millions of people that have seen Petco in a Costco now over the last few years. And not a lot of those people have bought, like if you look at how many sales have made compared to how many people are walking through the Costco, it's a tiny fraction. And so all the others are seeing it and they're, they're developing that brand awareness, or maybe they're buying a small order. They're getting one knife in the Costco and they're primed for another sale, right? After buying that one knife, they walk through a fair somewhere and they see our booth at the fair. And now they buy a thousand dollars more stuff from the reps that are there. And so my perspective is Costco has been awesome. A lot of my ex reps have commented that, Hey, I saw you guys in Costco. That's so cool that you're opening up that channel. And it's bringing in profit and revenue for the company. It's creating greater brand awareness. It's opening up opportunities for sales reps. There's just so much good that's coming out of that development that we've had over the last few years. You hit it all. You hit it all just right. It's been very good for us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, how about uh, the personal side of Amar Deve? What are you excited about right now, Amar? Well, I'm excited about everything, man. Uh, it's uh, My kids, two of my kids are in, in college. I'm excited about whatever that experience is for them. Uh, they're both at Colorado and Boulder. My oldest graduated about a year ago from SMU. She's working for a consulting firm out of the UK. She's based in the United States. but uh, So she's got a job. And as a parent, that's always a great thing, right? She sold Cutco, by the way, So back as a freshman. So, of course, I, that's a, it's a mandate uh, for our children uh, <laughs> to, to do. I have one, my youngest has not yet. So, you know, tell Drew if he's looking for a recruit, Drew Frank, that uh, I got, you know, we got one in Boulder that still had to sold. One Duvet that has not sold. <laughs> <laughs> but I mentioned to you prior to our, our start here that uh, we recently moved to Michigan, where I'm originally from. My wife and I are both from here. And uh, after my daughter graduated high school, we left Texas. We've been there 28 years. And uh, we, were, we were 1,200 miles away from family. Our parents are all still alive, thank God. And our siblings are here. And, so it's just an opportunity to be closer to family and kind of see them casually versus having to make it a trip per se. So uh, as you commented, I'm I'm sitting out on my lawn because this is where our best internet connection is right now and looking at Lake Michigan. So uh, it's uh, life is good. Life does not suck. Life does not suck for <laughs> sure. 
I'll say this last part too for all of our younger friends out there. I told all my teams this over the years, the two most important decisions you make in your life, choice of partner or spouse and choice of profession. If you can get two of them right, you can live an extraordinary life. And uh, I like to believe I've gotten them both right. You know, I've been married well, almost that's... 25 years and been with Cutco for almost 35 years. So Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Oh, that's so cool to hear. Amar, you've definitely earned all of the uh, great experiences and great accolades that, uh, that you've had over your career. When the Cutco history book is written one day, you will undoubtedly go down as one of the most impactful individuals in the long and storied history of Cutco. There's no doubt about that. And I think everybody can get a sense of that from having heard your story and your lessons today. So I really appreciate uh, having you make time for the podcast. This has been great. Thank you, Dan. And thank you for the kind words. I wish you well. And to everybody that's listening, I, I wish you great success. Awesome. Thanks a lot. That was Amar Dave, everyone. Really enjoyed being able to hear the story of Amar's career and a lot of the cool things that he's done and is continuing to do. Performance opens doors, Amar said relatively early in the conversation. And, and it's clear that Amar was willing to work to perform, balancing both school and work back then in those days and performing at a very, very high level to be able to have created the Im immense success that he has had. Amazing to hear the list of individuals on whom Amar has stood on their shoulders. Tim McCready, PJ Potter, John Carpenter, Lloyd Reagan, Scott Dennis, among some of the most notable in the earliest parts of Amar's leadership career. And he said, your team is a reflection of who you are. And if these people and many of the others that Amar has developed over the years are a reflection of who Amar Dave is, that gives you some semblance of the amazing caliber of leader that Amar uh, has been over the course of his illustrious career. He talked about perspective conversations and the importance of being real, balancing reality, right, in providing feedback to other people. I thought that was really a compelling insight and extremely valuable and something that all leaders can take and consider how you can learn to do that in a way that's constructive and powerful and influential in helping to develop the people who are under your guidance. Amar has always been known as an incredible innovator. Having him in charge of new business development for Cutco, you can rest assured that a lot of great things are going to be hatched over the coming years. Many things that have already been hatched, of course, and are developing, but a lot more is going to come down the pike here in the future with Amar at the helm. So definitely one of our most incredible leaders and most influential people in Cutco history. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.